The following Bible lesson and other Bible information can be found on the official Dean Bible Ministries website. That's found at www.deanbible.org. That's www.deanbible.org. Or write to Dean Bible Ministries Incorporated. That's at address 5868 Westheimer. W-E-S-T-H-E-I-M-E-R, number 461, Houston, Texas, 77057. Dr. Dean is the pastor of West Houston Bible Church. And now, here's Dr. Dean with the Bible lesson. Before we get started this evening, we need to make sure we're in fellowship. So let's start with a word of prayer. We'll have a few moments of silent prayer to give you the opportunity to use 1 John 1.9 if necessary to make sure that you are in fellowship and ready to study the Word, focus, concentrate, put aside the cares and concerns of the coming week or the problems of the last week so that God the Holy Spirit can use His Word to strengthen us and to produce spiritual growth in our lives. Let's pray. Father, again, we're grateful that we have this day, that we have this freedom that we have to gather together to study your word, to proclaim the truth of the gospel of Jesus Christ, and to learn what you have to say to us. We thank you that we live in a nation that guarantees us freedom, and we pray that you would continue to bless this nation, to guide and direct our president and our military as well as civilian leadership, that we may continue to have our freedoms preserved and the security of this nation protected because we know that no matter how strong our military, no matter how great our technology, no matter how advanced all of our systems may be, our security rests solely in your hands. Now, Father, as we study your word today, we pray that we might be able to uh, focus, concentrate, that your word would refresh us, encourage us, strengthen us, For it is your word that is the means of our spiritual growth. Our Lord prayed, Sanctify them by means of truth. Thy word is truth. Now as we study these things this evening, encourage us and strengthen our faith, we pray in Christ's name. Amen. Last week we began a study, a new study, that I'm entitling Foundations for Life. or Actually the singular foundation for life. And I began by asking you the question, what is your foundation for life? What is it that you build your life upon in terms of the rationale for the purpose and meaning of life? A foundation for life needs to be of such extent that it gives us a, an answer for why we live, what the purpose and meaning of our life might be, where our life is headed, what we're trying to accomplish in life as well as those questions related to values. Where do we receive our values? What gives us the overall framework for decision-making, for determining what is right and what is wrong? And above all, what about a future destiny beyond our physical death? These are the questions that any philosophy of life should be able to answer. 
problem is that most philosophies of life and most religions are unable to truly bear the weight of these issues when it gets to uh, tough times, crises, when it gets to asking the tough, rigorous intellectual questions, the world's philosophies and religions can't provide the answers. The result that we see th down through the ages is that eventually this produces a certain amount of skepticism and cynicism among people, and ultimately if they can't really come up with an answer for why there's a life, what the purpose is, what the ultimate destiny is, then people often just, just give up and they just live for the moment, live for themselves, do whatever makes them feel successful or feel better. This is a situation we find Pontius Pilate in at the time of the sixth trial with our Lord Jesus Christ. And I began there last time looking at John 18:37. When Jesus said, For this cause I was born, and for this cause I have come into the world, that I should bear witness to the truth. Everyone who is of the truth hears my voice. Notice that Jesus talks about the truth, one overarching truth under which everything else has meaning, has significance, and it is a truth that unifies Everything in life, all understanding, ethics, values, laws, uh, geology, history, philosophy, everything is unified under this one truth. But Pilate's response is the response of the product of the philosophical age. For him, he's the product of the results of centuries of Greek philosophy in the Greco-Roman culture, and he has expresses the standard skepticism and cynicism. Hmm. Truth, what's that? There is no truth. Let's just get on with what we need to do. Now, there was another group of people involved in this trial that I talked about last time, and that's the religious crowd. As distinct from those who believe in biblical Christianity, there are those who have uh, tried to solve this emptiness that philosophy or reason or experience can't fully answer with religion. They use God words and God talk, and they use... Um, ritual and often ethics and morality as a way to sort of stiff arm the truth of God, to keep God at bay. And somehow I'm going to assuage my own guilt conscience because I am involved in good works or good deeds or religious activities. I go to church on Sunday. I light candles. I say prayers. I do all of this overt activity. And somehow that's going to Get me favor with God. Once again, they denied the truth that is being represented by the Lord Jesus Christ, who said, I am the truth. So you see that there's head-to-head -head conflict. Among the Jews, there were the Pharisees, who were the more rigorous, fundamentalist, legalistic, ethical, emphasizing crowd. And then on the left, there were the Sadducees, who rejected... Uh, rejected resurrection. They didn't believe in a bodily resurrection. They didn't believe in the existence of angels or supernatural. So they pretty much represent that liberalizing uh, group of religious thought that has existed down through the ages, such as Protestant, liberal Protestant theology out of the 19th century or deism or other forms like that. And over against this, we have the claims of biblical Christianity, that there is one truth, and it is a truth that man 
can know. And it was this truth that Jesus Christ came to represent. It was this truth that Jesus Christ revealed. It was this truth that Jesus Christ claimed to be. And it is that claim that Jesus Christ made in John 14:7, I am the way, I am the truth, I am the life. No one, without exception, can come to the Father except through me. That claim hits the ears of many unbelievers as just the most arrogant statement they have ever heard. Well, what about all these good people? How in the world can somebody who who gives to the poor, who is involved in community projects, who gives their life to civil service, who is moral, upright, and outstanding, how can they be rejected in heaven? And on the other hand, you can have someone like this sexual pervert out in Florida. I don't think he was a believer, but let's say he was. And at some time he had crusted Christ that someone who committed all of these heinous sins could be in heaven. And someone who had been led a good moral life couldn't be. How arrogant. And every one of us, at one time or another, if you have ever been involved in witnessing to any unbeliever, have run across that objection. And that question, just Friday night, I was having dinner with a friend and his family, and, and uh, his sister started asking me these questions. We went on for two hours, and this was one of several questions she th- threw up. How can you believe that a God could, for any reason whatsoever, allow someone that's horrible or as heinous as a Hitler or a Stalin or one of these uh, child molesters, into heaven on any reason whatsoever. And it's this failure to understand, ultimately, the authority of God. And in that, it is a failure to understand the structure of reality as it's defined by God. See, man always seeks to have answers, but he starts from within himself. And that's so important to understand. What's your starting point for coming to an understanding about the issues of life? If your starting point is yourself or finite existence, then ultimately you're going to end up feeling as if there really isn't any certainty or any answer, and you're just left awash in a sea of questions. This was the situation both in ancient history, the history of the ideas of uh, Plato, Aristotle, the Stoics, the Epicureans, but it's also the story of modern thought, modern ideas from Cartesian rationalism in the 17th century all the way up to modern existentialism. And I set this up last time by showing this particular chart, and I want to get this into your head because this is so important to understand. We have our X and our Y axis here on a, on a graph, and the vertical axis represents space. What we see, we're talking about empirical knowledge here, how much we can see, and this extends from the smallest object we can observe through uh, microscopes, through uh, the, whatever instruments we may have, up to the largest conceivable objects we can directly observe, such as the existence of, of galaxies out in the uh, universe. The horizontal line represents time. 
from the smallest increment that we can observe, whether it's directly with our eyes in just maybe a half a second, to using time-lapse photography, we can sometimes break a second down into various components. But from the smallest uh, nanosecond to the largest time period, which would be direct historical observation, is recorded uh, 1,000, 2,000, 3,000 B.C., 4,000 B.C. is about as far back as any direct historical observation goes. Beyond that, we have no direct or indirect information. And so this sets up the parameters of human knowledge. In terms of time from the smallest microsecond up to the uh, period of historical observation, we have our two boundaries. In terms of space, from the smallest particle that we can observe to the largest galaxy in space, this provides our limitations. And this box describes the limitations of all human knowledge. Well, some of you may be saying, wait a minute, I thought we were talking about truth. Well, you see, Jesus made a truth claim. He said, I am the truth. As soon as you start to witness to somebody, as soon as you try to explain biblical Christianity to someone, and you say, this is the truth, they say, well, how do you know? See, truth claims and how you know what you know can't be separated. But when man faces his own knowledge, he has to recognize that it's always limited. We have such a finite amount of knowledge. It's, it's, it's like the head of a pen in terms of all knowledge that's available. And when we compare all knowledge that's been available in human history to the vast amount, the infinite knowledge of God, we recognize that we're trying to judge or evaluate God on the basis of almost no knowledge whatsoever. Man is locked inside a box that limits his knowledge. And when he starts inside that box, he can't get outside the box. There's no system of rationalism that's ever been able to get outside of the box. There's no system of empiricism that's ever been able to get outside of the box. What is necessary is for someone outside the box to come inside the box. Now, when man is limited and he's inside this box, all he can do when he starts inside the box is come up with certain deductions, guesses, speculation, but he can't know anything for sure. And he's going to judge everything outside the box on the basis of the frame of reference that he has inside the box. And what we have, according to the Bible, outside of the box is the Creator. The Creator, God, is outside the box, and He speaks inside the box so man can have information about what goes on outside the box. This is what Jesus referred to, as I closed last time, in John 3 when He spoke to Nicodemus. He said, If I have told you earthly things and you do not believe, how will you believe if I tell you heavenly things? No one has ascended to heaven. In other words, there's no human being who on the basis of either his reason or experience can tell you what's outside that box of human experience and the creation. Only someone who has come down from heaven, that is the Son of Man, who is in heaven. And so what Jesus is saying is that it is necessary for God to speak to man in order to give him information of what's outside the limitations of human knowledge. Only then can man have certainty in his answers to those fundamental questions of life.
Why do we exist? Does my life have a purpose, or am I just some cosmic accident, as the Darwinists say? Does my life have meaning and value and significance, or am I just fundamentally no different from a, from a rock or a lizard? Is there life after death? Will I see my loved ones again after I die? Furthermore, is there a God? Is there a God I can trust, I can rely on, who gives meaning and value to life? Questions that we all wrestle with in the light of criminality and suffering. Why is there evil and suffering, and is there ultimately justice for those who commit these heinous acts? And is there ultimately a God who will resolve that problem? But see, man in his knowledge, if he's just inside that box, is left with just guesswork and speculation to get outside the box. An analogy that's often been used to talk about philosophy and the goals and attempts of philosophers to answer this question is the analogy of a blind man in a dark alley trying to grab a black cat. And the black cat represents truth. And what you have is Plato comes along and he tries to grab that cat and he sits over on one side, he grabs it and says, I've got the cat. And then Aristotle, remember, still a blind man in a black alley, he grabs some and says, I've got the cat. And then the Stoics come along, I've got the cat. And then somebody else, I've got the cat. And pretty soon you have 20 or 30 different thinkers saying, I've got the cat, but they're all blind and they're all in a dark alley and they don't have a clue what a black cat would be even if they grabbed it. But what the Bible says is that Jesus comes along and says, I am the light of the world, and he turns the light on. He says, now I'll define what truth is because you're blind and you can't see it. And man, because he has fallen and because of sin, says, no, I'm going to deny that. This is what Romans 1.19 says, that men suppress, which means to reshape, to spin, to put their own orientation to truth. They suppress, they hold down, they warp truth by means of unrighteousness. They want to rethink it. They want to define truth on their own terms and not on the terms of God. So they're constantly, generation to generation, rejecting truth. Well, if we're going to understand why there must only be one truth... And why it is not arrogant for Jesus to say, I am the truth, the only way. We can't just start with Jesus. If people are really interested in answering that question and coming to understand why this isn't arrogant, they have to take more than two or three minutes to investigate the answer. And that's another problem we have today. Somebody throws this objection at you just as a way to sort of hold up a shield and keep you away. And I find that I like to ask, well, do you really want to investigate the answer, or do you just want to argue, or do you just want to waste my time? Do you really want to take the time? Because the answers are there, but it takes a little time, a little mental effort, a little work to think it through, because we don't just jump into this with a two-sentence answer. But there are answers. And the answer starts with going back to the beginning of the Bible because we have to understand that what Jesus says about being the truth fits within the total structure of biblical thought beginning in Genesis chapter 1. So what I want to do for you this evening as we get into this basic series is help you understand what that structure is. We'll start in Genesis 1, we'll end in Revelation 22, and we're going to do it in about 25 minutes. 
So we're just going to hit the high points. What we have to understand is the total frame of reference. We're not obviously not going to deal with every, every detail, but we want to hit the flow. So let's ta- start with the first instance, and that's creation. We'll go through the first book of Genesis, looking at the creation, the fall, the flood, the Tower of Babel, and Abraham together, and then we'll move on to Exodus. But those are the first ones. Creation. What the Bible tells us is that God created the universe ex nihilo. That means he created it out of nothing. That tells us right off the bat that there is a radical distinction between God as the creator and man as the creature. It paints God as the designer, the architect, who sets the structure, establishes both the physical laws, biological laws, laws of chemistry, physics, all of the physical laws, laws of gravity, thermodynamics. God is the one who put those in place. But just as there are physical laws, there are also spiritual laws. And these spiritual laws are just as real as the physical laws. And God is the one who made these things to be what they are. But what modern man wants to do so often, and you see it everywhere. In fact, I was talking to a friend of mine today, and he said, yeah, it's like trying to teach somebody how to play poker. And you tell them that three of a kind beats, what, two pair? I'm not a poker player. He said, uh, three of a kind beats two pair. And people say, well, why not? Why can't it be the other way around? Well, those are the rules. See, people, whatever the illustration may be, people just want the rules to be what they want them to be. That's why it's ultimately an authority issue. It's ultimately a spiritual issue, whether it's football or baseball, and you get these crazy schools that say, well, we're going to play baseball and just let the kids make up the rule. We don't want any winners and losers. Well, that's not baseball. See, anything in life has rules. There's things to do right, things to do wrong. And whoever designs the game, the business, whatever, has the right to set the rules and set the standards. So God sets the physical and the spiritual laws. Along with that, we're told in Genesis 1 that God made man. He made man in his image and in his likeness. Now, there's a lot of things that we can say about that, but one of the things that we should note about that is he made man in such a way that man could receive divine communication. God knew that he was going to speak to man and that he was going to reveal things to man. And so he created man with a soul and with a mind that was structured in such a way that man could hear what God had to say and understand it and know with certainty that it was the truth. God doesn't just create this creature and say, oh, gee, how am I going to talk to him now? You know, God in his omniscience and omnipotence and in his uh, infinite wise planning ability created a creature in such a way that God knew that he could communicate and man could receive that communication. As part of his immaterial nature, man's created with four key elements. He has self-consciousness. This sets man apart from all the other creatures. It sets him apart from the animals. Man is capable of knowing and understanding himself. He can know his own behavior, his own actions. He can evaluate and analyze his own behavior and his own actions. Second, man has a mentality. He has the ability to think, to reason, to develop his knowledge and his understanding of the creation in which God has placed him. Third, he has volition. He is responsible for the decisions that he makes. 
And he is able to make choices, and he's able to understand what the implications are from those choices. He has self-determination. And then fourth, man has a conscience. He's given the ability to know right from wrong, to have standards, and to then operate on the basis of those standards through the correct use of his volition. And all of these work together within the soul of man. And then God took that man who was created perfect in God's image with the perfect righteousness of God, and he placed him in perfect environment so that there's nothing in the environment that is going to be the cause of this man's failure. But within that environment, God created a test. And that test was designed to help the man understand his own responsibilities and the importance of trusting what God said. Now, that man was placed in the garden, and in that garden there were hundreds of different kinds of animals that God had created, and God gave man the responsibility to name the animals. God had already begun the naming process earlier when he named the uh, light day and the darkness night, but now he's going to delegate further responsibility for naming the creatures to man. So man has to use his empirical abilities, his senses, to identify, categorize, classify the animals. So we're not saying that empiricism can't get you a certain amount of knowledge, but it can't get you that overarching capital T truth that we're desperately searching for. Man uses his reasoning abilities, that intellect that God has given him in order to understand these animals, to see who goes with whom and who the, where the pairs are and how to categorize and classify them. And man begins to explore his environment, and as he does, he begins to learn many things about it. But there's one thing he can't learn from empiricism or rationalism, and that is that there's one tree in the middle of the garden that if he eats from it, He will die instantly spiritually, and it will cause a separation between him and God, and he will come under eternal condemnation. The only way he can know that is if God reveals it to him. So what we see from the very beginning is God structures reality, and then he identifies what that reality is to man. That is the start of truth. Truth is that which conforms to reality. God defines reality by how he creates it, and then he informs man what the conditions are of that reality and what the consequences are for disobedience. And, of course, we know what happened, that Eve was challenged. This is the second instance from the Old Testament, and that's the fall. In the fall, we have the fallen angel Lucifer, known as Satan, who comes along in the form of a serpent and tempts Eve. He says to her, Has God really said that you should not eat from the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil? And then he clearly contradicts God and he says, You know, if you do that, you really won't die. So what he has just done is he has challenged the truth of God's statement that if you eat from the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you will surely instantly die. Now, what Satan has done, being the most subtle creature in the garden, as the Scripture says, is he has created a logical trap for Eve. Because if she falls into this and tries to make a decision on who's right, she's immediately put herself over God in a position of judging God. And, of course, she walked right into the trap, sort of like uh, answering the question, have you quit beating your wife yet? 
However you answer that, you're in trouble. You just avoid the question. What she did was she decides to sit and say, well, the only way I'm going to know if this, which, one, which claim is true is if I conduct my own experiment. So she takes from the fruit and she eats it and instantly there's spiritual death and then she entices her husband and he eats and then there's more spiritual death. And see what has happened here is you had truth, absolute, God created reality, defines reality, he reveals the nature of reality, but then man comes along and sits as a judge and tries to redefine reality and restructure reality and the consequences just totally devastate reality. It ripples through all of creation. It not only separates man from God in terms of his spiritual death, but it has repercussions throughout the biological, chemical, physical structure of the universe. But God is gracious, and God comes and seeks out man, and God again reveals to man what the consequences are, how reality has now changed because of man's sin. And in his grace, he reveals that there will be a solution to the sin and that there will be the seed of the woman who will come and who will bruise the head of the serpent. And this foreshadows the classic struggle down through history between God and the fallen angel, Lucifer. So in the fall, we see that man has redefined reality, restructured it, rejected man's truth, but God in grace restates the the revelation, but that doesn't end it. We get into Genesis chapter 4, and we read through the history there. We see the first murder, and following that, there are other murders. We see the uh, deterioration of marriage. We see the deterioration of the family. We see the beginnings of the abuse of women and the use of women as sex objects in the rise of polygamy and the whole line of of Adam down through Cain deteriorates. And the human race gets in such a mess because of their rejection of God and their reinvention of truth, and you just see it from generation after generation in Genesis 4, man keeps wanting to restructure truth. He denies what God says, and that's Romans 1 again, suppressing that truth in unrighteousness, and he wants to define reality on his own terms. And eventually things get so bad that God has to end everything through a radical judgment. Just as there was a judgment at the fall because of man's restructuring rejection of truth, there's a judgment at the flood. And so God sends a flood that completely reshapes the face of the earth, and in that there is a revelation of grace before the judgment. For a hundred years, Noah proclaimed that this flood was coming. There was only one way of salvation, though, and that one way of salvation was to get on the ark with Noah and his family. But once again, man rejects it. There had been a one way of salvation after the fall, That one way of salvation is foreshadowed through the animal sacrifices that had to take place in order for God to clothe man with the animal skins. And so sacrifice became a representation of man's belief in God's free offer of salvation. But, of course, that got perverted into religious activity prior to the flood. And then the flood comes along, and again, there's only one way of salvation. There's this exclusivity again. And man rejects that because he is suppressing the truth in unrighteousness and God judges man. There's the flood, wipes out everybody on the planet other than Noah 
and his particular family. So the flood is the third key event. And in that event, we see that man before the flood spins that revelation again, suppresses it, rejects it. But God in his grace provides a solution, and once again, there's only one way. God always provides a basis for salvation. It's always based on grace. God always provides the solution, but man rejects it. The result is that the human race is destroyed and they get a new start. And once again, after the flood, we see new revelation given by God to Noah in Genesis chapter 9. And in that new revelation, he tells man once again that he is to be fruitful and to multiply and to scatter over the face of the earth. But man fails. Once again, he suppresses the truth of revelation and there's going to be judgment. This is our fourth event. It is the connection between the Tower of Babel and Abraham. These are connected because of the failure of of the Tower of Babel. God has to go to an alternate plan to provide revelation for man. At the Tower of Babel, man chooses religion again instead of God. He suppresses the truth of God's revelation and tries to develop his own means of protection, finding meaning in life. And many of the ancient religions find their source and their starting point with the polygamous religions and the fertility cults during that period surrounding the Tower of Babel. Again, there's judgment, and God judges the human race, and he divides their languages, which forces them to scatter, to spread out over the earth. And God comes back, and in his grace, he provides a solution. He's going to work with one man and his descendants, and through them, he is going to provide the Savior, ultimate resolution to the problem of evil and sin. He only works through one man. Again, we see that exclusivity. He's going to work through that one man and his descendants, and he tells that man what he is going to do. And so it is through the descendants of Abraham that God is going to call out a special people who are going to be the custodians of truth. It's going to be their responsibility to record the truth and to preserve the truth. And God in his sovereignty is going to oversee the process so that what is recorded is not tainted by human error or mistakes. God is going to use men to do the recording, but God is going to supernaturally govern the process. He will reveal himself, he will protect the revelation, and he will preserve his written truth. Again, we see that even in Abraham's own line, truth is rejected, suppressed, and his descendants get into trouble by the fourth generation when Jacob has his uh, 12 sons who become the uh, forerunners of the 12 tribes of Israel. Rather than living a separate, distinct life, they're wanting to intermarry with the Canaanites in the land, and this compromise would so destroy God's plan of working through this people that God causes them to go to Egypt where they're going to be enslaved by the Pharaoh. But in that, God is going to preserve and protect those people so that they're isolated until they grow to a large enough population that they can be protected down through history. This leads us to the fourth event. We've looked at the creation, the fall, the flood, the Tower of Babel and Abraham. And now the fifth event is the Exodus event. Now this is another defining event for Revelation. 
God appears, he reveals himself to Moses, and he warns the Egyptians that they need to let the people go. But the Pharaoh, in classic human viewpoint pattern, rejects that. He denies the truth of what God has said. He rejects revelation. He's going to define reality on his own terms because he's bought the lie that the Egyptians promoted that the Pharaoh was God. So it's a clash of truth. But once again, God, through ten plagues, shows that he's superior to the entire Egyptian pantheon. And the defining event is the last plague, the tenth plague, when God announces that he will take the life of the firstborn in every household. But once again, there's grace before judgment. And in that grace, God reveals that there is a salvation, there's a deliverance, there's a way to avoid the loss of the firstborn, and that is to take a lamb that is without spot or blemish, and it doesn't matter if you're an Egyptian or a Jew or what you've done in life, you take that lamb without spot or blemish and you sacrifice it and you spread the blood on the doorpost, and that's the one and only way of deliverance. Once again, truth is exclusive. They spread the door on the doorpost, and the angel of death came and passed over the house, the houses that were marked with blood. That's the origin of the Jewish uh, celebration of the Passover. Some rejected what God said, and they said this won't happen. They defined reality on their own terms. We've never seen this before. We don't have any experience of this before. We've never seen a God act like this before. It's not going to happen. The next day they were having a funeral. As a result of that, the nation is granted their freedom and God leads them out of Egypt and he leads them into the wilderness and at Mount Sinai he gives them the Mosaic Law, which is to govern the life of a redeemed nation. Now in the Mosaic Law, he gives them a ritual in order to represent the truth of how he relates to man and of who he is in terms of his own holy and righteous character in the form of the tabernacle. And God's presence indwells the centerpiece of the holy place of the tabernacle, and only the high priest comes in because God is teaching that as a holy, righteous God, there have to be certain things done before you can come into his presence. And if you look at the structure of the tabernacle, there was only one entry point. There's only one way to go into the tabernacle, and God says if you're going to come into my presence, these things have to happen. Ultimately, there has to be a cleansing. This is the concept of atonement, and there has to be a blood sacrifice. If there's no blood sacrifice that covers sin, then you can't come into my presence. So once again, truth is revealed. It's exclusive. It excludes those who do not come in, and there's one and only one way. And what happens again? Well, we know the story. The people reject it. They revise it. They suppress it. And while Moses is up getting the law, they're down having it. Aaron fashioned a golden calf, and they're substituting religion for revelation. Then when they get in the wilderness and they come to the promised land, again God says, I will give you the land. There's specific revelation. Twelve spies go into the land. Ten come back and say, we can't defeat them. What did they do? They suppressed the truth. God didn't say, go see if you can defeat them. He said, spy it out to see how you're going to do it. I'm going to defeat them for you, but they reject that, so there's condemnation, punishment again, because there's only one in one way to do what God says to do. So they come back, ten of the spies say, we can't do it. 
And God says, on that basis, the people have rejected me. They'll wander in the wilderness for 40 years, and that generation won't go into the land. When they do go into the land in the next generation under Joshua, they conquer the land only under the direct specific instructions of God. They just can't go in any old way and defeat the armies. They have to be precise. The first battle is the battle of Jericho. God tells them this is how you're going to take out the Jerichos. It's a time-honored strategy, isn't it? You're just going to put down your weapons and walk around the city once a day for six days. On the seventh day, you'll do it seven, seven times and then shout and blow your trumpets, and the walls will fall down. Oh, sure, that's in every military strategy book, isn't it? See, the issue is God defines the way, and we obey him because he's the one who determines, defines reality. That's truth. And so when they did that, on that seventh day, they blew the horns and yelled and the blew the trumpets and the walls fell down. Tremendous victory. But in the instructions, God says you're going to destroy everything. You're going to destroy all the valuables. You're going to destroy the sheep, the goats, the people. You're going to kill every man, woman, and child because they're an abomination to me. And there was one man who saw some gold and some silver, and he decided, well, I'm going to get away with this. So he took some for himself, buried it under his tent. And when Israel went into the second battle... They lost. And Joshua was just beside himself, and he cried out to the Lord, Why did this happen? Why did you lead us here to be defeated? And God said, You didn't obey me. There's sin in the camp. There's a guy who didn't obey me. You have to do exactly what I say to do, because there's one and only one way. There's only one and only one way to stay away from spiritual death before the fall. There's only one and one way to to take care of sin after the fall through sacrifice. There was only one and only there was only one way to have safety at the flood, and that was to get on the ark. There's only one way to survive the Passover, and that's to put the blood of the lamb on the doorpost of the house. And there's only one way to conquer the enemy, and that's what I say. So. They identified who the offending party was, Achan, and they killed him. Capital punishment. They removed the sin. He confessed his sin. They removed him through capital punishment and execution. And then Israel had victory over the inhabitants of Ai. And the story of Joshua and Judges is our sixth point. That's the conquest and the crisis. The conquest and the crisis. God revealed how to conquer. When they obeyed him, they were victorious. When they disobeyed him, they were defeated. In the conquest in Joshua, we see obedience and blessing as they conquer all the strongholds in the land. But in the book of Judges, we see just the opposite. We see failure and defeat because they compromise. Rather than, having a, rather than rigorously holding on to the truth of God, they compromise that truth with the religious truth of the Canaanites and the inhabitants of the land. In the book of Judges, we see that there was no king in the land, and everyone did what was right in their own eyes. That's the same place we are today. It's moral relativism. They were saying there's no truth. The only truth is my truth. You have your truth. I have my truth. Canaanites have their truth. Let's all get along together and enjoy each other. Why should we kill all of them? We're just going to enjoy one another. But God said that's not how it happens, and so there are going to be various consequences. And for a period of over 300 years, there is this cycle of defeat and enslavement, and then the people cry out to God, and God sends a deliverer, 
and then they once more go into sin and this cycle of despair, military defeat, and for 40 years or so they're enslaved, and then it happens all over again. It happens seven different times in the book of Judges. And we end up in our seventh major event, which is the event of the monarchy. The monarchy, and God provides a kingdom for Israel, a king for Israel. And again, this is provided through revelation, through the prophets. And the prophets do not change the revelation of God, but their job was to press home to the people the implications and application of the law that God had already revealed. We see the first kings in the united monarchy are Saul, David, and then Solomon. But Solomon rejects the truth. Solomon reshapes the truth. He suppresses the truth and he leads the people into idolatry. And as a result, God says that for his father's David's sake, he won't take the kingdom from Solomon, but it will be taken from his son. And so there is a division that occurs, and that's our eighth point from the Old Testament, the nation divided. It's divided because they've rejected the truth. They've turned their back on God who delivered them from Egypt, the God who delivered them from slavery, and they've reshaped and suppressed the truth, and they're going after idols under Solomon. So God causes a civil war, and the nation divides into the northern kingdom of Israel and the southern kingdom of Judah. The northern kingdom is evil continuously. From the very beginning, they had an alternate religion. Uh, Jeroboam set up a uh, golden calf and said, This is the God that delivered you from Egypt. See, he's reshaping the truth. And as a result of that, there was no dynasty in the north. You'd go a couple of generations, sometimes three, and then there would be a revolt. There was always upheaval and catastrophe in the north. And as as the generations went by, their religion became progressively... uh, progressively perverted and they went into the fertility cults of Baal worship and the Asherah they had child sacrifice and finally God disciplined them in 722 BC and they're defeated militarily by the Assyrians why because they've been given revelation throughout this period prophet after prophet came to the northern kingdom announcing the truth of God and they rejected it and they reshaped it. They suppressed the truth in unrighteousness. The story in the south is not quite so bad. There were a few kings in the south who followed God, but there were many others who didn't. And eventually those who didn't gained the upper hand. And by 586 B.C. it was necessary for God to discipline the southern kingdom for the same reason. They had substituted the worship of God, the truth, by the human pseudo-truth of idolatry. And so they were taken out of the land. They were defeated by Nebuchadnezzar in the Babylonian kingdom. And God took them out of the land for 70 years. But see, God had made promises in the uh, earlier years to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob that there would be a Savior that would come through them and through the tribe of Judah. And so God brought part of the Jews back to the land to establish the post-exilic kingdom under Zerubbabel so that there would be a group of Jews in the land through whom the Savior would come. And so we come from our eighth point, the nation divided, to our, well, I skipped over it, I summarized it. The ninth point is the nation disciplined. The nation disciplined, and they're taken out of the land for 70 years from 586 B.C., 
when the temple is destroyed until, although they began to return in 536, the temple is rebuilt in 516. That's where you get your 70 years. And during that time, they're out of their land, they're under discipline, but what's going on? You have Daniel and Ezekiel, and they're ministering to the exiles. And what's happening? God is revealing truth. See, God never leaves us. No matter how we fail, no matter how bad gets, God continues to reveal truth, and He continues to provide this for us in grace. And God continued to reveal truth to Daniel that there was a future for the nation, there was hope for the nation. God still was going to fulfill His promises to the nation, and there indeed would be a coming Savior for the nation, the Messiah. And so the nation returns in 536 under Zerubbabel. This is our tenth point. The nation returns. The eighth point was the nation divided. Ninth point, the nation disciplined. Tenth point, the nation returns. What is consistent throughout this? God gives them truth. They reject the truth. They reshape the truth. They suppress the truth in unrighteousness. There's always the battle between the truth of God and man, always wanting to redefine reality on his own terms. And then we have the fulfillment of the promises. Point number 11, we have truth incarnate. The second person of the Trinity, the Son of God, becomes a human being. He takes on human flesh. And this is the greatest revelation of God in history. John 1.14, And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. The Word is a title for the second person of the Trinity. The Word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we beheld His glory, the glories of the only begotten of the Father, full of what? Grace and truth. See, once again, it is this invasion of divine truth into human history that is what upsets everybody's apple cart. The Lord Jesus Christ enters into human history, and when He teaches, He says things like, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man can come to the Father except by Me. He lays down the gauntlet. He says there is only one way and only one truth. Now, people try to get around that all kinds of ways. You've probably experienced it when you've uh, given the gospel to other people and talked to them about the Lord Jesus Christ. They try to say, well, you know, there are other truths. Now, I always say, now, wait a minute, let's come back to this statement. What do you think about Jesus? What do you think about Him? Well, you know, He was a good man. Well, wait a minute, He said He was the only way to God. You can't say He was a good man unless you say He was also the only way to God. Unless you say He was the one who was the only Savior. Because if He says, I am the way, the truth, and the life, no one can come to the Father except by Me, He's either telling the truth or He's telling a lie. Is there another option? Come on, tell me. I asked that question. I'm trying to get people to think about it. Is there another alternative? I want to put them on the pins of their own dilemma. Is there another option? No, there isn't. He is, if He is telling the truth and He is the God of the universe, He's the one who created the heavens and the earth, and He is the one who died on the cross for our sins so that we could have eternal life. But if He's not, He's lying. And if He's lying, He is the most evil deceiver in all of human history because millions and millions of people have trusted Him exclusively for salvation and they'll end up in heaven or not in heaven because they trusted him and he was not trustworthy. So you only have two options. He's either telling the truth or he's telling a lie. And you can't let an unbeliever squirm off of that hook. Leave him there. Let him feel the tension. 
so that the Holy Spirit can use that to make the truth clear to them. Jesus made a number, number of under, other statements. For example, he told the Jews, he said, I am the door. What's he talking about? That one entryway into the tabernacle. There's only one way into the presence of God, and that's through the Lord Jesus Christ. Well, we know what happened. Pilate threw up his hands. He said, there's no truth. He goes out to the Jews. He says, I can't find any fault with him. You do what you want to with him. He went and washed his hands. And it was the religious people, the do-gooders, the ethical ones, who took Jesus and beat him and took him out to the cross and had him crucified. But truth is triumphant. That's our twelfth point. Truth will triumph. It triumphed first when Jesus Christ rose from the dead in a physical bodily resurrection. And he demonstrated that he had paid the penalty for our sins and he had conquered the greatest consequence of sin, which is death. But truth will ultimately triumph when the Lord Jesus Christ returns. For the Bible clearly predicts that the Lord Jesus Christ will return to earth one day. And when the Lord Jesus Christ returns to earth one day, he will establish his kingdom. And then ultimately, it is the Lord Jesus Christ who will sit in judgment over every human being. And the issue is not going to be how good were you. The issue is going to be, were you good enough to meet the perfect righteous requirements to get into heaven? Do you have perfect righteousness? Because you see, the real issue behind all this is that we're dealing with a holy and a righteous God. This is what we'll develop in coming weeks. The issue is that God is of such a nature that no one can come into his presence unless they are perfectly righteous. They have to meet his standard. And God looks at the human race and he says, Granted, there's a bunch of you who are good. Remember, Jesus said to the disciples, You, being evil know how to give good gifts? See, God recognizes that there's relative good, but it's not good enough. It's not perfect righteousness. God says that all of our unrighteous, all of our righteousnesses are as filthy rags. He doesn't say all your unrighteousness is filthy. He says all your righteousness is filthy because we can't do anything ever to merit, the, all, merit, merit God's favor. God will never find enough in us because... We're tainted from the very beginning. We're born in sin. We're born dead in our trespasses and sins. Yet the message of Scripture is that God loved the world so much that He sent His only begotten Son, that whoever believes in Him, not whoever believes in Him and does good, not whoever uh, follows certain ritual, not whoever is a member of the right church, but whoever believes in Him shall not perish but have everlasting life. You see, the issue really isn't how can God have an exclusive one and only one way to get into heaven. The issue is how could there be any other way to get into the presence of a righteous God other than through a sacrifice that paid our penalty for us that opened the door. From Genesis to Revelation, there's only one way of salvation again and again and again. There is never a multiplicity of ways to God. God, as the Creator, has the right to define who He is and who we are and the terms of how we get to Him. It is not the creature who can say, I'm going to decide how it should be done. But it is the Creator who determines the rules. Well, next time, 
As we go forward in our study of foundation for life, we'll look at God. Because the starting point for understanding everything is to understand who God is, who God is as creator and who God is as the truth. It is truth that is a foundational element in the character of God. So we'll come back and begin to look at who God is to try to understand his character, his attributes, his essence, his existence in the Trinity in terms of how that relates to the concept of truth with our heads bowed and our eyes closed. Father, we do thank you for this opportunity to study your word, to be challenged by these truths, to recognize that you are the one who established reality, you are the one who establishes truth, and you are the one who reveals truth to us. As we see down through history and the confirmation of Scripture is that, that men generally suppress the truth in unrighteousness. But you have always preserved a witness And you have always presented the grace-salvation path. And it is always one and only one way as defined by you because there is one and only one way to deal with the sin problem. Father, we pray that if there's anyone here this evening who's unsure of salvation, uncertain of their eternal destiny, that they would take this opportunity to make that both sure and certain. Right now, right where you sit... All you need to do is decide what you're trusting in for salvation. God, the Father, and His omniscience knows what you trust, what you believe, and the issue is not your works, not what you've done in the past. The issue is, do you believe that Jesus provides the way of salvation? Do you trust exclusively in Him? Faith alone in Christ alone. Now, Father, we pray that you would challenge us with the things that we've studied this evening, that knowing we have the truth, that we have hope, that we have a future destiny, a future glorious destiny, and that no matter what issues we face in life, what problems we must surmount, we know that you are the solution. We pray this now in Christ's name. Amen.